Well, good morning. Let's pray. That's God to help us here. Lord, we uh, thank you for this passage, uh, great passage from the Apostle Paul. And Lord, I ask that um, the words that I say here would be an encouraging to my brothers and sisters in Christ, and that uh, you might be honored um, by what is said. So thank you for this written word that is practical for us to shape our life and to make us different, to make us new. And Lord, I ask that uh, in this year, uh, my, we find uh, different passages that uh, would uh, encourage us along the way to keep us focused on, on you being um, the Lord of the universe and the Lord over our circumstances, the Lord over our decision-making. Lord, we pray for our children as they are below and as they hear your truth. Uh, Pray for the teachers that you encourage them for the work that they're doing. And then maybe uh, a child today would hear Jesus, the gospel, the truth of their salvation, and they would repent and turn from their sins to follow you. May that be so, and may you speak that clearly even now in this room, in this place, through um, uh, the words that are shared. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, not too long ago, I was driving down I-65 heading toward uh, La- Lafayette, Indiana. And uh, on either side of I-65, there is this billboard sign it's called the Triple X Diner. And some of you might know what I'm talking about. Triple X Diner was on the, the, uh, the show not too long ago on the Food Network. And I, I've just been eyeing this, this billboard sign on my frequent trips down to Indianapolis. And they have a triple-decker cheeseburger. And you're like, what's so big about a triple-decker cheeseburger? I mean, it's like a pound each of the, the patties. So you're eyeing this, and you see it on both sides going north and south, and so one day, I, I wanted to stop by this diner. I was hungry. Uh, it was before my diet. And I, I wanted to see if this was really true, this triple X Decker you know, hamburger that could compete against Portillo's in a heartbeat. And sure enough, I was watching people just like, I mean, eat this thing. And I'm like, wow. And they call it the ultimate triple Decker. I mean, the ultimate. And... I thought about that, and I'm like, wow, that's, that's an ultimate picture of my stomach getting met today. And, but I didn't, I didn't partake. I've been thinking about doing it um, the next time I head down that way. But uh, that would uh, eliminate the diet for the year. Um, but then my, my mind has traveled about this passage that we're working through, this ultimate Christ, this cosmic Christ, this Lord of the universe that we worship and we adore. And, and then we, we think of people that have influence in our lives. And I, I think as a young boy, we were into um, the wrestling scene. We didn't have wrestling, but we watched wrestling on television. I, I like violence. And I, I, like, I like the fact that people pound each other. It's just like, you know, you know boom. And, and there was this guy, the ultimate warrior, the ultimate. I mean, he he had he had the the muscles bulging and flexing and and painted his face. He would fly in the air. And so, as a young boy, I thought, man, he was the ultimate of ultimate ultimate superstar. I mean, the dude was packing, and and I just I I loved that. So I moved from a hamburger to this 
athlete who would fly through the air. And probably the greatest scene that I remember was him taking down Hulk Hogan in the championship round. I mean, it was you know, nothing like today where they are in this saga, romance, and we can't even watch it anymore. But this was back in the day. I mean, it was violent. To me, it was violent. People hitting each other from one side of the ring, the ultimate warrior flying through the air. I want you to picture today the ultimate Christ of the universe who is far more spectacular than a cheeseburger heading down I-65 to the ultimate warrior in a ring who is taking down Hulk Hogan. I want you to picture Jesus as this cosmic, this cosmic Savior who is above all things, and he's your Lord. And you can have a personal relationship with this Lord. And he was human. And he walked this earth. And people touched him, felt him, had a conversation with him. And he changed people inside. And that's what I want to focus on today. As you look at this passage, it's rather unique. It's jam-packed full of details. And so I'm going to do my best to work through this. Um, People have looked at this person of Jesus and who he is. I go back to the, the ancient church council of Chalcedone who wrestled with this whole fact of who is Jesus? Who is he? How do people shape him to be? And they were in the early days of the church trying to define the Lord Jesus very clearly. Is he this cosmic savior? Is he Man, you need to know that even in the early church, as this epistle was being written, you have pre-Gnosticism, pre-Docetism that was, was gaining ground in the church. And the questions, again, were they were wrestling with, who is the Savior? Who is this Christ who is, has claimed to be both God and man? And how do we come to understand him as our Savior. So as, there, there's no different as we look at people say, well, let's go back to the biblical times. Uh, you know, they were dealing with the same issues that we are dealing with today with some of our modern-day cults who redefine who Jesus is. I mean, you don't have to go too far down the road, and you will find a, a Jehovah's Witness uh, location. I wouldn't even call it a church, but a fellowship. And you can go down into Sugar Grove area and find the Mormon church that's there. And and they claim to be a church. They claim to have Jesus on their, on their banner, but yet they deny that he is fully God. What's the problem there? The problem is, is they take one form of Christianity and they try to shape it so that you and I might buy into it. But the Council of Chalcedon made this profound statement in defining who Jesus is. It's profound. Full deity, perfect humanity, without mixture, change, division, or separation in the one person forever. That's what they were trying to define who Jesus is. And and by by 451, you have Nestorianism that was gaining um, ground, and they were also arguing the fact, was Jesus actually human? Uh, How far did his humanity go with this whole divinity side? It's a great question. Uh, People have been enamored by this person of Jesus. You look at Napoleon who wrote this, everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overpowers men. His will confounds me. Between him and whoever else is in the world, there is no comparison. He is truly a being all by himself. 
And this seems to be what the Apostle Paul must be mentioning in verse 18 when he says that everything in Jesus Christ is preeminent. The first place, the first rank, the highest mark in a group. He is to have the first spot, the first thought in our thinking and how we go about our day. I look at some of the different English translations. You might have one as your copy for today's message in the uh, the old King, King James Version, it says that in all things he might have the preeminence. The New International Version says it this way, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, the New American Standard update, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. And I like how the New Living Translation phrases it. So he is first in Everything. Christ, the Savior, is to be the first in all that we do and all that we say. He is to be the first as we think about in our worship. Worship is all of life. In every activity, one of the things we've been studying in our evening discipleship group um, here uh, is we've, we've talked about in one lesson that, that worship involves all our activities are coming and are going. And maybe you haven't really thought about that, that Christ is in everything that you do, whether it's in the meal preparation, to the cleaning of the house, to children, uh, students at their school, take, doing their homework. Christ is to be observed in that activity as a worshipful offering. But I think for Christians, we, we often think that, oh, what I do here, Sunday morning at the sacred hour of 9.30 is my worship offering. This is what I do. And then... Once it's done, I get in my car, and I have to endure the next seven more days until worship returns. This is kind of somehow we, how we think, but, but Christ in everything, and Paul seems to be stressing this as, as the main passage here. He says, and he is the, not only the head of the, of, the, of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be the first. The ultimate Christ is our hope, our joy, for which we declare together through worship this cosmic Christ, this Christ of the universe, this Christ who is also man. J.B. Phillips, in his old book in the 1960s, he called it, Your God is Too Small. Most of us have far little to appreciation for the power and magnificence of God. God is not only all-powerful, his love for his creation is so great that he sacrificed his son in order to give us another chance. Your God may be too small today, and I hope it isn't. I hope that Christ is above your thoughts and your thinking and your activities and all that you do and say, and so this is where we're trying to head that as we look at this whole view of this passage, it is a hymn. It's a hymn of the faith. It's a hymn that it looks like that the early church would have sung in their worship services as they gathered together. The lines are such as, as they have been drafted to have a stanza one and stanza two, and we don't know the, the, the tune that, that the church sang in accordance with, so... I'm sorry, we, we don't have an arrangement that we could probably sing here now. 
But he is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, begins that first stanza. stanza. So if you want to write this down somewhere in your handout, that if we were to outline this, not in the outline that I had before you, but on a separate uh, side note, you could say stanza one is this, Christ and creation. It begins with this theme that Christ is the Lord of all creation. He is the one who was there creating the heavens and the earth. He was there present in um, time and space, causing man to come into being. And then you move to verses 18 and 20, and you see stanza 2, which is probably could be labeled as Christ and the church. Christ and the church. And where we see that transition in verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church. So stanza 1, Christ and creation. This is the beginning of stanza one. They would probably sing in unison together as the, the body of Christ, the church gathered. And then they would move to stanza two and announce that Christ is the head of the church. Now, when we think of hymnology in the early church, we think, well, there was a piano, there was a guitar player, maybe a drum a player, a drummer, and all other sorts of instruments. I No, they probably sang a cappella. And they did not have instruments. They would sing uh, in some type of tune. Um, There would most likely be a leader leading that uh, time of singing. So there wasn't any, quote, um, melody line, though there might have been. But what I find interesting, that hymns are creeds. Hymns are simply creeds or confessions that you and I would state and say together. This is what we believe to be true. This is what the scriptures have um, shown to us in, in clear form. And so Christ and creation, stanza one, stanza two, Christ and the church. I want to look at this ultimate Christ who is our ultimate hope and joy. And I want to look at it from a different uh, level and look at it from three statements. Okay? So where does, for you, as you look at this new year, is some time of a time of reflection, as Pastor Travis mentioned, but I want you to think about this year, where does Christ fit into your, your activities? If Christ is the Lord of creation, and he is the Lord of the church, the body, where does he fit for you on that human level as we understand it from this passage? Well, number one, Christ is God and creator of all things visible and invisible. Verses 15 and 17, and also I pick up verse 19 for you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then look at verse 19. For him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ is God. And he is creator of all things visible and invisible. Something to just stop and say, okay, if God, Christ is God... That is a statement we're making here today as a confession. Christ is what? God. 100% God. 
And the same breath, I'm saying he's also what? Creator of the heavens and the earth. Jesus is the same today, yesterday, when? How far? Forever. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. If you ever have an opportunity to go to Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, you'll see that on their kind of their banner. And, and, and that is a claim that they're making, so we today make it as well as the church. And so our worship affirms his, his full deity, his humanity, and his eternality. So when we talk about his deity, we're saying that he's 100% God. There is no deficiency in Christ. 100% God, and he's also 100% man, and, and he has eternality, meaning he, he lives forevermore. There's never a, a, a time where he did not exist. Is this making some sense, I hope? This is what the passage is going. So this is what the hymn or the confession of faith is merely trying to get this, this picture to us that this is Christ. He's the ultimate Savior. He's the ultimate Christ of, of the universe. And he dwells both in visibility to us and invisibility in the sense that, that Christ is now absent from us, though he is present with us through the Spirit, and his, he's actively working in his church. He is Lord of all. He was visible in the sense that he lived and people touched and had conversation with him. He's now invisible in the fact that now he's seated with who? The Father, by his right hand, exercising dominion. And we can look at other passages that that speak of those thoughts and um, get our minds around what does it mean to be at the right hand of God the Father? What does it mean to exercise his kingship over the earth? This is where Paul is going here. He is the image of the invisible God. We cannot see God, but we see Christ. We see Christ. And this is what Paul is arguing, that fact, that that as Thomas in John's gospel, if you were to go there and look at John, Jesus says, Thomas, you've been so long with us. You've been long with me. And you're asking this, in many ways, well, it's a profound question. Show us the Father. It would be enough for us. And, and Jesus says, well, you've seen, if, you, if you've seen me, you've seen the who? The Father. The manifestation, the appearance, and, and the likeness of who God is. Our worship affirms today that he is both full deity, humanity, and eternality. For by him all things were created. Where? In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. And, and I begin to wonder at times at, at science. And my mind goes there often that there are things that I cannot see. But if I were to see them, I need the help of an instrument. And whether that might be a microscope or if I want to look at the outer space and I need the help of a telescope, and those things bring into image, and, and I begin to look at, uh, in a microscope, the, the smallest details that my eye can't see, but with the aid of a tool, I'm able to look at it, and from my eye's view, point of view, it looks invisible, but now it becomes what? Visible to me. It's helpful to see that. Then when I look at space, I see certain things, yes, the twinkling of the stars, but then some people are like, you see that? That's like uh, the belt 
Uh, no, I don't see that. How do you see that? But, but if, I, if I were to look through a, a telescope, now that, that image that they may see through their eyeball or eyeballs, um, they're able to see it. It comes clear to me. Okay, I get it now. But then there are galaxies beyond galaxies that I can't, what? I can't see, and we, we equate that as invisible to us, though it's visible, right? It's visible in the sense that if we were there, we would be able to see it in and understand it. There are things in the ocean that we can't see, but we know that they exist. In this passage, it says that Christ, who is the, in, uh, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, he is the one who made these things exist. Present. You can write down that this, this, this claims evolution. And I'm a big proponent that the Bible doesn't teach evolution. It t- teaches us a creator God, uh, the God who did it instantaneously. Now, whether how many years, I don't know, but he did it instantaneously. It looks like in Genesis chapter 1 through 3 that it was an instantaneous act. And, and, and um, I, I, I think we have to, to claim that, whether, you know, how many lengths of days the, those get into uh, nuances that I don't want to this morning. But you can be rest assured that God did it. He did it. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And to do it by chance is to, to say, wow, you're just missing the beauty here and the architect behind and the design and, and the, uh, the wonderment it brings to the, the human person who looks at these things and says, wow, <laughs> that, that was not a chance. That, that was the God of the universe who flung it into existence. And when you look at the, the human being, whether, the, whether it's a little baby in, in the womb of the mother, the delicacy and the intricacy of, of the human vessel that's in there, that's not by chance. That's by a creator, a creator God. And Jesus was there. Jesus was present in that work. And in that time, and in that period, Jesus is fully deity, has full deity, full humanity, and eternality. So we look at his deity in the sense that he is 100% God. And then when we look at his humanity, we're, we're looking at his life here on earth. And it's the very Jesus who lived here on earth, we're told in 1 Thessalonians, that same Jesus is going to come back for you and I. You're hoping for that, right? That day when the clouds are rolled back and Jesus comes, that same humanity that was here in, in AD 33 is going to come back and you're going to see him and you're, full, you're going to be able to touch him for the first time. Every single one of us are going to behold who he is. The magnitude of his glory, this glory condescended here to earth for. 33 years, he dies, and he's lifted up to the right hand of God the Father. But in his humanity, we're saying that Jesus suffered. Jesus experienced all that you and I experience. He, he, he went through times of suffering, such as in the desert for 40 days. And, and Jesus knew what it felt like to be rejected by people. Jesus knew what it felt like to be, to be tired and thirsty and to be hungry and 
he looked at the state of, of people and saw their, their sin and, and what sin had done to them. And he was enduring all this to during his life here on, on earth and full 100% man. The Orthodox Church in many ways is different from the Protestant churches. And um, one of their things that really sets them apart from, from maybe the Protestant church is that the Orthodox Church spends a lot of their liturgy, a lot of their time and worship around this humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus becomes the, the special piece for us to understand who is this cosmic Savior of the universe to let him spend this time up there, but now to bring him down to a human level for people to be able to experience this mystery is for them something special. And so now Christmas continues for them. In the Protestant church, December 25th, what happened? The trees went down in many homes. (laughs) Down. For another year. We took Jesus in for a few months, for a month, and now we're done. Nativity, the baby Jesus, and now we're on to the next two months of, hmm, what do we do about this Jesus? I want you to do something more with Jesus than keep him in a box, keep him on a cross. I want you to see Jesus as the one who is both creator of the heavens and the earth and both not only deity, but also what? Personally involved in your life. He's full deity, full humanity, and he has eternality. Be firstborn, verse 15, firstborn of all what? Of all creation. Speaking of his prominence as um, God's only son, the beginning of time, never a time where he was never existing. He existed. Now, there was a time. There was a time where, where now Jesus becomes in his human flesh uh, the appearance of, of Jesus on earth, the, the condescension. This is what we call the incarnation. God now becoming what? Becoming human and, and living amongst people. Um, but, but Jesus from all eternity. John four fourteen verse 9 says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says it this way. They don't understand the message we preach about the glory of Christ who is in the exact likeness of God. Jesus. When you see Jesus, you see God. And he is creator. He fills. And then you look at this phrase, all his fullness dwells in him. You look at verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. And, and he is before all things, taking this notion that he is to be the preeminent one in charge, the first thing above all your thoughts. But all his fullness dwells in him, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Some commentators put it this way. That, that, that Paul is dipping his fingers back and his mind back into the Old Testament to speak of this God who fills both not only the heavens but also the, the earth. He fills the temple, and then at times he what? He leaves the temple. He, his spirit departs. But God fills this place. He fills this place. God is here. You know that God is here. There's never a place where you can go that God is not 
actively present. Oh, there are some dark places, but God is what? Absolutely there. That's the declaration of God's omnipresence, that he is all places at all times. This was in the mind of the early Christians when, when, they, when they lifted up their voices and, and claimed it, that Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ above and Christ below, Christ at my right and Christ at my, my left. This was their, their understanding of, of who Jesus was. He was Lord of the universe, the image of the invisible God. They don't understand the message we preach about the glory of Christ who's in the exact likeness of God. God's dwelling both in the heavens and the earth. As Jeremiah 23, verse 24 says, God is said to fill heaven and earth. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 72, verse 19. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. God fills. Or maybe the old Revised Standard Version says it this way, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Where does Christ today, in this hour, in this sacred moment, as you take in the scriptures and you listen, where does Christ fit into your, into your worship? Or, or maybe it's fit in a different way. Where does Christ fit into your thinking patterns today? Is Christ the preeminent one? Is he the cosmic one? Is he so cosmic that he has no relationship with you and you keep him at a distance when he is actually very close at hand and you can experience him? And so as you look at your outline, our worship then affirms his creation of all things visible and invisible. We need a creator God who creates and is visible and invisible. Look at the things you see around. Get us to the picture that he is close at hand with us. But then, when you look at things that are very beautiful, it also puts him at a distance because we know he's the one that that created it. He is the one in which we fully affirm today is Christ. God is Christ. Christ is God. He is our God, and we affirm it, and we worship for by him all things all things both those who are ruling over us he created he allows them to exist kings and dominions he allows them he has sovereignty over all things were created through him and for him and you could circle that for him and that that's a central aspect of his glory that that these things exist for what to glorify and praise his glorious name, all things. The beauty, the majesty of this, whatever, this earth that, that, that as we understand it, is, is in many ways to us, to our recollection, it's, it's beautiful. There are things that we see, such as the Grand Canyon, mountaintops, we're like, wow, that's, that's, a, that's really beautiful. Someone takes a, a photo of it. Faces on Facebook. We're like, wow, that's cool. There's nothing more personal when you see it, right? You see it. Now it becomes personable. And we're able to relate. Ah, yeah, that's the experience. So, so we need Jesus now to come down to our, our human level. And he does this for his own praise. And he holds all things together. And in him all things 
hold together, are, are contained by him. And he allows things to unfold in time, whether it's storming outside, whether the earth quakes, he holds that together. He holds the moon in its place, the sun in its place, so that he might get the praise. He is the one we exalt. So that leads us then, as we look at our worship, then needs to go to this next level. He is the first place then in all our activities and thinking and pursuits. The first place. If he's the preeminent one, if he's the one that reigns over heaven and earth, he is the king, then he needs to be king of your life, in your activities, in your coming and your going, in what you think about throughout the day, in your long-term career pursuits. Some of you who are young, you're thinking about, what do I want to do in the future? And I say to you, may Christ the preeminent one in your pursuits. Yes, you can be the best engineer, electrician, as long as you keep who? Christ, the central key person in that particular job. You can be a teacher. You can be a nurse, a doctor, a lawyer. As long as you keep what? As long as you keep Christ, the preeminent one, in your worship, in your activities, in your thinking, in all your thoughts, in your relationships. Keep Christ Lord. Keep him central. This is what Paul is trying to move us to and get us to think about this, this eternal Christ who is both God and man. First place in all your things. And you, when you do this, listen to me very carefully. When you do this, you will find rest for your weary heart. Christ in your activities, Christ in your thoughts, Christ in your pursuits. You will find rest for your tired heart. This is why the hymn writer writes it this way, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art, I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee, and thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. This Christ, who is both Lord of the heavens and the earth, you can have a relationship with him. You can both worship and adore him and find peace for your tired heart. But it leads us then to this last statement here that, that not only can you find peace in your heart and, and know that in all your thoughts and all your activities, then Christ contains this. He controls this, this movements of the heavens and the earth by his power, by the word of his power. He controls it. All this fallen creation as you see it. Boy, when you look at creation, the whole world, the world is, as Romans says, the, the world is groaning as in a woman in labor. Right? The whole world is groaning. You don't have to travel too far. You don't have to turn on the news. You can see people groaning. I was at the grocery store yesterday, and a lady is flustered that her card wasn't working. It was uh, a link card. 
And for some reason, it had expired, and she was hitting the machine, hitting the machine, hitting the machine. The lady, the clerk was getting really upset, and the lady was like, you don't understand. I need the what? I need the, the food. People behind me are getting flustered too. What do you do? You minister as best as you can, and you take your own visa card, and what do you do? You, you swipe it in the name of what? In the name of Christ, because you know people are groaning. People are going through their own pain. People are going through their own suffering. And, and yet, we're told in this passage that Christ keeps the world together. I need that. When I look at the world around me that's suffering, when I see chaos, and when I see the earth unfold its chaos, and when I, when I hear people dying, getting beheaded, and losing life, and when there's famine in one part of the earth, and on the other side of the earth, there's, there's fruit and veg- vegetable, and people are able to go to the market and get food, and, and then you travel to another side of the, the planet, and you what? You look at, wow, they have nothing, and we have in many ways, everything. God, Jesus, the Lord of the universe, controls all these things. He holds it together. And that's something you and I need to find as helpful in our worship as we look at this ultimate Christ, who is our ultimate hope and joy, is to be the first in all things. Yes, and that's what the early church declared in their song, in their hymn. And it leads then to this next statement as you look at your outline, that if he needs to be the first, the first in all things, Christ then is the head of the church, securing this through the payment of his very own blood. Look at verse 18 and 20. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And then look at verse 20. He says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. John Stott says it this way. It's a bloody mess here. It's a bloody mess. He's not only the head of and the creator of the universe, but he's the, the boss of the church. My children often ask me, are you the boss of the church? No, I'm not the boss. I'm basically his steward. Each one of us are his stewards. When I travel and I get the opportunity to speak amongst the African-American churches, I um, find it really unique, um, but they spend a lot of time with this uh, important theological truth called under-shepherds. Each person in the flock are under-shepherds, caretakers. Caretakers, I like that. that. That there is no boss but Christ. He's the head, he's the president, he's the captain, he's the general. In all things, he is the head. He is the first, supreme. In all the activities and the affairs of the church, Christ is to be worshipped and adored, and we take his lead from him. Our vision comes from him. Our mission comes from him. Our activities come from him. If we want to end an activity, we go to Christ and we say, what do you say, Christ? Christ says, kill it or keep it. What is it? And I think sometimes we get on these 
bag wagons and we decide that, well, we're going to do this activity. And we really haven't consulted the head, who is Christ, supreme over the church. He is the head. And so then our worship in this hymn, in this creed, affirms his headship over the local church. Now, think in terms Paul was speaking to the Colossian believers. Um, I like him to say that this principle here, the head, Christ is the head, in reference, as we look at all of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians mentions the body, Christ is the head. We are maybe his fingers, we might be his his leg, his arms, his, his eyes. I can't say to his you know, feet, we have no need of you. So you can look at that in 1 Corinthians 12 and, and see how the body is unique. Each one of us has a variety of gifts. Each of us are to be stewards of that gift. But Christ is still the what? He's still the head. And we are rendering our service unto the head, Christ. So the pastor shouldn't be the prominent one up front. I, that's personal, my personal take. I know in some cultures, the, the, the elders and the leaders end up taking their place on stage. I don't like that. That's something culturally in my own theological view that Christ needs to be the preeminent one. He takes the first place. We take the lower seat. Something to think about. Christ in all things, he is the head. Head over the church. Now, I, I like it to say that Paul is thinking about a body, a metaphor, such as your body. You have a head, right? Right here? You just tap your head. Make sure you're still on there, right? My mom would say, make sure your head's still there. And I know what she was talking about, that your, your, your head has the brain. And when you go and talk with others, I want you to think about what you're going to say with people, right? Put on your thinking cap. And I thought it was actually like, you got to do this, actually lift it up and put it on. It was like a helmet. Okay, now I'm thinking the head. And I think Paul's thinking this way, that this is a body. The church is a body. It's multifaceted. We got, hopefully, what? Hopefully our hands have what? We got five fingers on one hand and five fingers on the other. I mean, they have one missing. I know some people have one missing. And they have to what? They have to practice getting adjusted to that one missing limb. It's often difficult. Men and soldiers and women who come back from war and a limb is missing. It takes them a very long time to recover from that type of loss. Christ is the head. To miss the head is not to have a church. Christ is the Lord of the church. You decapitate the head, you don't have the church. He's the central piece in our worship. In all that we do and all that we say, in our activities, in our coming and our going, he is to be supreme, the boss of the church. But they are not connected to Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, as we go through this passage, you'll see it later on as this uh, series goes on. But they are not connected to Christ, Paul says. The head of the body, there's something disconnected from its members. They're not connected to Christ. For we are joined together in his body by his strong sinews. And we grow only as we get nourish, nourishment and strength from God. God growing us as we stay connected. So how do you stay connected to this head? Well, there's different ways. You stay connected. You can join a small group. 
You can come to our discipleship time on um, Sunday evenings. There's men's groups. There's women's groups. There's um, groups for our kids and, and students. There's different ways of, of staying connected with the, the body of Christ. And so he begins by this second stanza. He is the head of the church, the captain, the general. And then he puts this statement back in again. He is the beginning. This other theological truth, which is, is deep packed, and, and it almost goes back to what stanza one just said, that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and, and now he is the beginning. There was not a time, there was not a place. Christ always for all times. He is the beginning. But I think what this is saying here, not that he had not had a time in the, in the, in, in the ages past, that he is the beginning of a new thing. This church is the beginning of a new, a new program, a new activity for the Lord, that God is doing a new thing through this organism called the local church. And he's building in it the gospel, that people, as they come and hear the truth of Jesus, that Jesus begins a new thing in their life, and they are forever changed by that truth. Amen? They're changed by the gospel. But why do I say that? The reason why I say that is because of verse 20. You can't just disconnect verse 18 and 19 and 20 and not see this, this stanza kind of wrapped together about this person of Jesus. That Jesus is the gospel. That Jesus is the one who died, cancels the written code, and we are what? We're free from our, our darkness and we're brought into the marvelous life and we have been reconciled to God, brought back. We were dead, and now what? Alive in the gospel. I like how the message version says it. This is Eugene Peterson. This is not a translation. It's a paraphrase. But listen to what he says. And when it comes to the church, he organizes it, holds it together like a head does a body. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. I like that. Gives me a better picture of this head this preeminent one, this cosmic Christ, who is not only Lord of the universe of time and space, but Lord of the church. And so this affirms then his victory over death. He's beginning a new thing, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might find its first place, the victory over death. He raises his own life from the dead. Jesus says in three days, this temple will rise again. And people say, who did it? The Father did it, the Son did it, and the Spirit did it. All three did it. Because he is God, he is Lord. And so he conquers death, and you and I need him to conquer death. Why? Because the gospel's at stake if he keeps himself in a tomb. You're like, what about the cross? Yeah, the bloody cross is there. But you need him to conquer death so that the gospel might come 
to each one of us. And without the resurrection, we are hopeless. We have a Savior still in a tomb. And we don't. We have a risen Savior. He's reigning today, and he's coming back. He's coming back. And that should fill the hearts of every person here who is a Christ follower. His victory over death. And now there were occasions in the gospel where Jesus shows up and he conquers death, doesn't he? He, he raises Lazarus from the, the tomb. And this picture in many ways of his own what? This is what I'm going to do and people are going to be amazed by it. You think Lazarus' resurrection was amazing? Jesus' resurrection was far more amazing. And people saw it. Eyewitnesses were there and they were amazed by his appearance. And one day, our own mortal body will become an immortal body by the power of God. This perishable vessel will, will become incorruptible in time and in space. There will be a point where all your infirmities, all your pain, all your suffering, all your sorrows, all that will be changed into something new. And this is where I think this second stanza is going, that all things become new through Christ. He is the beginning of this new thing that he is working out in the church. Christ, this ultimate Christ, is our ultimate hope because he's our ultimate peace, and he becomes the first of all things. He is the preeminent one. Fair are the meadows, fair still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. But Jesus is still fairer. Jesus is still purer, who makes the woeful heart to sing. And if you're not excited about that, Death cannot keep his prey. Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose, a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. And we say it. He lives he lives, he lives where? He lives in my heart. Hallelujah. Christ lives. Or another way of saying it, Christ arose. This is our victory song. This is what we have trusted him for. And that leads us to the third element here, that, that our worship affirms the redemption of all people in this passage as you look at verse 20. And it brings it together that through him he reconciled to himself all things. Now the all things here are all things. You're like, well, wait, 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 wait. What did Christ do? He redeemed the earth. All things are going to become new. The beautiful trees that you see at the fall, the curse of the earth, the groanings of the earth is going to be what? Going to be changed in the new earth, in the new kingdom. We're told that that's what's going to happen. But, I, I, but this, this thing that he died for, namely for, for us, so that his glory might be praised. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him he reconciled, he brings us back to himself all things, all things, whether where? On earth or where? In heaven. 
What's in heaven? Things that we can't see, right? Things we can't see. We can see things here on where? On earth. And then there are certain things that we can't see. We're told that in the first stanza that he creates these things, whether visible or invisible. But he redeems people. He brings us back. And that leads us to our third statement to hear in this message. As you look at it, Christ, this is what we worship. Well, Christ is then our redeemer, peacemaker of all broken relationships, both in heaven and on earth. He redeems people. And so then our worship affirms this. He is not only the redemption piece in our life, but he brings us peace with God. Verse 20 simply states that, that he brings peace, making peace by the blood of his cross. You want to have peace this year? The only way you and I can have peace with God is that you have to personally trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible goes on to say that you have to repent. Turn from where? Turn from your wicked ways. Submit wholly to Christ by faith. You receive the gospel. And peace has been made. You don't want to have peace? Continue to reject the Savior. And you'll have storms and storms and storms all the way to the grave. Now, that doesn't mean when you come to saving faith that you won't have storms because the Bible does talk about it and that you'll have to endure suffering and you'll have to endure shame and you'll go through difficult seasons. But that faith is still there, that you're trusting by faith in this gospel. He brings peace through the cross. The second part of this piece is that he restores the relationships that are here on earth. Look at verse 20 again. And through him reconciled to himself all things, whether where? Whether on earth. And I know that there are earthly relationships that will not be mended in this lifetime. I just, I, I know that. I've come to my own grips with, with trying to restore relationships with people because my, of my own sinful flesh and because of, by the way, their own sinful flesh, that, that the two warring parties will just never, it just, it just continue to go. So we pray, we pray that when we see each other that we can greet, but I know the broken relationships will continue to exist and I need God's peace in my life to help me with that. I need him, I need him to help me work through that all the way until I meet him in eternity. And Romans 12, verse 18 says, Do your part to live in peace with everyone as much as it is possible or as far as it depends on you. You seek to live in peace just like our Savior brought peace to this earth. And lastly, it gives us then a new standing before the Lord of all the earth. Drop down, and this will be later picked up next week. He says, and you who were once alienated. So he's talking about what we were like prior to the gospel. Once you were alienated and hostile in mind, that was Joel but all. Doing evil deeds, that was Joel. You're like, that's you. That's what I'm talking about, turning from your what? Turning, repenting, and turning from your sins and following Jesus. And he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, again, connecting back to making peace by the bloody cross that he has conquered, 
And in order to present you holy and what? Blameless and above reproach before who? Before himself, before his father. And if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which you've been proclaimed to all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister of Christ. The ultimate Christ gives us a new standing before the Lord of all the earth. Who is this Christ you worship? It's something to think about as you move into a new week. Is Christ Lord of your workplace? What you do? Is Christ Lord of your conversation? Is Christ Lord of your home? Is Christ Lord of your relationships and your conversations, your thinking? Does he take prominence, first place in all your activities, in all your thoughts, in all your perceptions, in all your reflections? Does Christ take the first place? Where does he fit? My hope for you is that this ultimate Christ, who is our ultimate hope and our ultimate joy, would have the first thing, the first place in all things. Would you stand up with me and close for our closing prayer? Christ, we want you to be the preeminent one in all our activities, in all our thoughts, in our coming and our going. When we sit down, when we rise up, we want you to be the first, the preeminent one. As you're the Lord of the universe, so you are Lord of our hearts. Take this and use it in a special way. And Father, I ask, God, if there's someone here who has not trusted you, may today be the day of salvation. May they come to saving faith in Christ. Now dismiss us as we leave this place and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he has promised to go with us, that you would receive it and bless someone with it. In Jesus' name, amen.